Okay. So growing up in Pennsylvania, um, in the wintertime especially, you couldn't really go outside sometimes, depending on how cold it was. So we played a lot of board games, right? So we played all kinds of games, Monopoly, uh, played card games as well with my, my parents and grandparents, cousins. One of the games we played was Sorry. How many of you guys are familiar with the game Sorry? Yeah. Sorry, it's good, right? So those of you who don't know what it is, right? So you start with four pieces in a circle labeled Start. And you, I think you, I think you have cards. I think you have cards or dice. Um, and you have to roll, either draw or roll certain numbers to get out. And then you got to go all the. You're supposed to go all the way around the board until you get to home. Right. And so there's other ways you can go because some of the cards say go backwards or go, take two steps, four steps, whatever it is. And you have to do that, right? So and then the the whole thing with sorry comes into play where there's certain places where other players can hit the hit the slide spot and knock you out and they send you back home. And they say sorry, supposedly, but they're really not sorry, right? I was never sorry when I did it, right? So apparently it's also from, it's also based on some Indian game, like, a, like India, India, a game from India, I guess, actually, as, as well, when I was looking this stuff up. Um, so sometimes you get frustrated, right? Because you get, I don't know, I, sometimes I played the game where I had all four pieces out, they're all around the board, then all of a sudden everybody starts knocking them off, and I'm all of a sudden, I'm back at start, and I'm like... And other people have three or four people back in home or they're almost done, you know. So sometimes you get frustrated and so you're kind of faced with some choices, right? You can either stay in the start box and basically never get going and just say, yeah, but I don't have to experience the, the, the disappointment of having people tell me sorry that I've just sent you back to start again. Right? You just say, like, I'm just going to sit here and I'll keep drawing the cards. Oh, I can't get out, can't get out, can't get out, you know, but you... The thing is, you never get to go home. You never even compete in the game. You never get to finish ever, right? Or you could do what it's supposed to do and play the game and experience these ups and downs. You're going to go on around and you chase, you're being chased and maybe you're chasing people and, and you're, you're sending people home as well. Or to start, you're saying, ha ha, sorry. You know, quote unquote, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Because you have to put yourself out there. You have, the whole point is to get home. And being a Christian, the whole point is to get home. Home being heaven. Home being with God. And so you have to do the same thing just like life. That's why board games are entertaining, but they're also usually good teaching things when we have kids. Because we're teaching them things like, look, sometimes people are going to do things to you and they'll say sorry, but they don't really mean it. But that's kind of part of the game. And so... Sorry is a lot like life, right? Because your card is drawn and you're born. Another card, I can't move. Another card, you got to move four steps. Another card, move backwards. Do this, do that. Go home. Go, go back to start. And you want to get your way all the way around back to home, right? Another card is you get to move. Another card, you get to land on, you get to, on the path to home. Another card, God draws it, you're saved, right? And you go through these things through this life that God had already had, has planned for you, and you go through things, right? But we know people chase you. People are going to do be, be not nice um, because people are depraved, so people do what they want because they don't always believe what you believe, and they don't act the way you may act because they have their own upbringing. They play their own board games, right? But God is actually in charge of that as well because God is in charge of the entire world. And so this is where we find the Israelites today in Exodus 14. So the last couple of chapters, right, they've escaped slavery and they've been walking towards their new home for a few weeks now, at least for a little while. And God's going to say, wait, let's camp over here. Let's stop. And oh, by the way, let's stop so the Egyptians can catch up so I can finish them off completely. So, you know, how does that make you feel? Because you can almost hear the record scratch. Like, wait, what? We're going to do what? Stop. They're chasing us. They have horses. They have chariots. They have, you know, the modern, modern warfare tools of the day. And we're walking. We have possibly millions of people, women, children, everybody. We're walking through the desert. And you want us to stop? To take a break and admire the lake? Like, this is not the time to stop, right? We need to keep going, God. Because sometimes we feel that way too, right? Because this is counterintuitive. What God wants us to do doesn't make sense. Because again, when you're being chased, probably the number one thing to not do 
is stop. Especially when that's a larger army, and, and it's an actual army, and you're not. And you're like, wait, this doesn't make sense. So we're going to read Exodus 14. We're going to read Exodus 14, 1 through 14, because that sets up the whole thing. So it's a little bit longer, but it's, the God, it's God's word, so it's okay if we don't do anything else today. If we read this, and we could just go home, essentially, because this is what it is, right? This is why we're here, to hear God's word, not to hear me. <clears throat> and so this is what Moses tells us in Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pihahoreth between Migdol and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal Zephon, face it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. Ha <laughs> ha, it's like, right, I finally got them. Right, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am, Lord, uh, I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. No, that's good, right? They didn't complain. So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with the officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen, his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea or by the sea beside Pi-Hahoreth in front of the Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and they were the, there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Listen, the Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Right? And so here's our main idea is, is sometimes God has a plan even though or when he takes you the long way. Because if you, if you do any history reading about how the exodus, they think it went, or how it's described, they, they took a more circuitous route. They took a longer route to go up to the, the promised land. So they, they ended up, instead of just kind of going up along the med, they, and kind of going this way, they kind of went all the way around. Right? But part of this, is, it's all part of his plan. And so, so number one, the first point is that God can redirect his plan. And so this is the setup in verses 1 through 4. And so God gives them specific instructions to stop and camp. You're like even facing the sea, like face this way. And so one commentator says this. He says, direction, the direction previously taken apparently headed east-southeast. And so now comes a radical reversal of direction, presumably toward the northeast. And a sea coast, either that of the Mediterranean or the Red Sea, where the Israelites were ordered to encamp for the third time since their initial departure. And so surely such a route would look to anyone observing its, con its contrast to the Israelites' previous direction as an indication of confusion. Right? If you've ever been walking out in the woods or going somewhere, even driving your car, you're kind of going around, you're like, this doesn't look right. I don't know where I'm at. I'm pretty sure I don't trust the GPS at this point. I'm going to turn around because at least I know where the I, I came this way, so I'll go back that way. And so you end up driving around, you end up walking around. You know, and a lot of times all you do is get more lost. Right? Especially if you're in the woods, if, you, if you're not familiar with where you're at. So if you're watching people, if you kind of see almost like an Indiana Jones movie map kind of thing, and you're seeing like the little red line go, and you start seeing these do this squiggle thing, like, what are you guys doing? Like, sweet, they're, they're stuck, they're lost, they went down the wrong way. Cool, we can just go catch them. No problem. That's what the Egyptians are thinking about it. But let's look at the phrase again, what, what, what the commentator says. He says, it was a radical reversal. Right? You're going down one path, and all of a sudden God says, nope, turn around. Go back this way. Go over here. Go over there. Like, but I like going this way. This is a nicer road, right? It's a nice flat road like that. It's nice and straight. I can see where I'm going. I know where I've been. It's, it's all good. I'm familiar with it. God says, I don't care. Turn around. But it's longer. Too bad. Like, we just came that way. Well, keep walking. Right? And sometimes you're like, I don't want to keep walking. I'm tired. Right? You're like a three-year-old, right? Like, I don't want to go anymore in the mall. Ugh. 
You know, it's, it's like, look, this, just go, just do it, right? A radical reversal. So in these first four verses, God is giving instructions and his rationale for those instructions. He wants to make the enemy think the Israelites are confused. Right? He's drawing them in. He's saying, well, they're going to take the bait. Unfortunately, yes, the Israelites are bait. Sorry, you know, on one hand, he's like, you need to do this part because I need to bring them in here. And, and there's a better plan towards the end of this chapter that I'm going to get rid of these guys. Right? So for the Israelites, they're not cool with that necessarily, at least in a few minutes. But here's the application part for this part, is, is that God always has a reason for his redirections. Right? God always has a reason for this. And so we may not understand it. We may not even like it because, again, we may feel like the bait sometimes too in the world. Like, wait, what am I doing? Why am I going this way? You're God. You can do anything you want. Why are you doing this to me? And so... You know, but there's a plan to this. And God gives them this plan. He's like, this is, why, this is why it is. And so in the Bible, other places, we see God doing the same thing. So God redirected Paul. He was going to Damascus to kill people. And God said, no, you're not. You're going to become a Christian. And so he redirected Paul, but he also redirected Ananias. And so Ananias was the guy in Acts, in Acts 9 who had to help Paul. And so Acts 9, verses 10 through 18, this is what, this is what we're told. It says, there was, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has the authority here from the chief of priests to arrest all who call on your name. Right, this is a complete reversal to what he's thinking, what he's saying, or what he knows. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentile, to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house, and he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And once something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Right? Ananias has a similar reaction to Paul being told to go help Paul because he was the enemy of the way. Right? That's what the church was originally initially called was the way. Ananias is like, he's been arresting people, killing people, whatever he wants to do, because he's allowed, because the chief priest says it. Like, I don't want to go help him. I might just get arrested, right? Because it's sort of that, why are you trying to pull me into this trap, right? It's, it's, it's just like, a, he, yeah, he's an undercover agent almost, like, and God's like, no, dude, you'll be fine. Just take care of it. But God had been preparing Paul his whole life for this. And so both Ananias and Paul received the card, right? They pulled the card out of the deck and says, go do this. You know, move four spaces, go talk to Paul, go pray over him. And like, well, that doesn't make, I don't want to, I'm going to run into somebody else, right? Just like on the sorry board, like I have to hit somebody or I'm going to be close to somebody. They can knock me off the board and send me back to start. I don't want to do that. But it's part of the plan, right? We have, that's part of the game we have to play. And so we do that because God can withstand these mighty forces, even though we cannot. And so that's the second part. So verses 5 through 14, you know, it's kind of a joke sometimes people, especially with runners, and sometimes people say, well, I only run when I'm chased. And I'm not sure how many people actually get chased. Really. I've never really been chased, I don't think, too much. But unless you're the little kid or, or a lesser army, right, or it seems like everybody's bigger than you, you know, you start kind of worrying about this and stuff. So... so so you may be chased at some point. So, or we just see the world as this big force and we can't really do anything about it. And by ourselves, that's true. But the Israelites are looking at it. They were slaves. They were slaves as of a few weeks ago, possibly, at this point. They're not soldiers. They weren't allowed to have weapons because then they could rebel. They weren't allowed to have anything else, have any training or anything else, because they could rebel and take over everybody else because they potentially had more people than there were Egyptians. They didn't have any weapons. And then here come the Egyptians with their bows. And so here's an interesting thing, right? So the, it's thought that the Egyptians were possibly the first people to use bows for hunting and warfare around the year 2800 BC. 
Right? So these may be the first people who kind of you know, basically invented it, we'll say, um, took the technology to a different level. They had several different sized bows. And then, because this is what they said for historical purposes, they said the Egyptians used very light arrows that could be shot 400 yards using the composite bow, and it would easily penetrate the armor worn at the time. Well, the Israelites didn't have any armor, so they were sitting ducks. And then 400 yards, I mean, that's you know four football fields long. They don't have to get anywhere close to the Israelites, and they could just sit there and shoot at them all day like fish in a barrel. And they, would have, they probably had a whole bunch of endless, endless amounts of arrows, pretty much. And here the, Egyptian, or here the Israelites are stopping, camping, like they're just making s'mores and hanging out. And all of a sudden, they see this cloud of dust, most likely from the horses and everything, coming towards them, and they start panicking. Because on top of that, they had chariots. So this was like a huge advantage. And so what they did was they would ride, the archers would ride on the back of the light chariots and go around the sides of the enemy. So even if they were attacking as they were coming in from 400 yards away, then they would kind of go around and they would sort of coordinate and they would sort of just go around the, the groups and shoot them from the sides as well, right? And these attacks would have devastating effects. And so these chariots were the attack vehicles of choice and they were used by a lot of cultures. And so what they think is the Hiskos which is a sort of a neighbor of the Egyptians, were probably the first people to use the chariot. But eventually the Egyptians beat them they kind of, and they perfected the chariot a little more. Um, they perfected the tactics and used them to conquer more land and expand their empire. So the chariots were kind of the F-22 of their day. Right, so this is a cool technology. Um, and I'm a history nerd, so I watch all kinds of history shows. They, have, they, they show about all the different technologies and how they use these, these chariots. And it's pretty crazy. You know, they have one guy driving and one guy shooting. And so here they are. They're trying to walk. You're trying to get possibly a million or two people trying to walk through the desert and escape the chariots. It's not going to happen. But we go to Exodus 14, verses 10 through 13. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up when there were Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help, which is good. Right? They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone. Leave me in the starting place. I'm fine here. Right? So that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Right? So they're whining. They're complaining. They're scared, which is fine. You know, they don't know what's going on. They just think they're going to die. So they did all this work for nothing. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. So here's our application for this part, right? Trust in the Almighty God's saving power. Trust in his saving power. And I guess I didn't copy it all the way through. That's fine. So trust in the Almighty God's saving power. And so again, I'm going to read verse 13 again because it's super important. So like highlight it, underline it tattooed on your arm whatever you got to do but Moses said to the people don't be afraid stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today the enemy will be gone later you will never see them again so in the game of sorry we can't sit in the start box waiting for the game to be over because that is a sure way to lose the game and so you can't be afraid to move. You can't be afraid of the world because God is in control of everything in it, the good and the bad. And that's important for us to understand. Now, God does not cause the bad things, but he takes care of it and allows certain things, and he already has a plan to counteract it. Right? The Egyptians are going to get their comeuppance here in a, a little bit because they treated the Israelites poorly. They didn't let them go, so they suffered the, the Passover, the death of the firstborns. And now he is, God is going to finish the deal and get rid of the Egyptian army, at least, at least a good large chunk of it. So when you fail, don't be afraid to get back up after you repent. Don't be afraid of what others might think or what the world throws at you because God is here and God is saving you. And so Jesus brings us hope in the darkness. Right? Moses is saying, look, God is giving us hope. He is going to take care of it. He is the one here. God gives us hope when we are faced with all these enemies, this overwhelming force. 
Because God is more powerful than any army on this earth. Even if all the armies on the earth, if they could work it out, they would all get together and say, well, we're going to go fight God. They're still going to lose. Because God is the most powerful being ever. And so we get hope. And so the Bible is full of this. And so especially the New Testament, because it focuses on Jesus. And so 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? We have this new hope. We don't have to worry about the greatest enemy, death. Because he's already beat it and we know we have eternal life through him. When we believe and we, he's our Lord and Savior. So Paul says in Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. So it seemed like the Israelites got a little bit of this, right? They, they started praying, but they weren't necessarily patient, and they didn't have a lot of hope. But the good thing is they went right to God, so they knew to go to God first. That's a plus for them. But they need to follow through and actually have this hope in him and expect him to do things, because he will. So Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when we have hope in God, we can be filled with joy and peace that even though the, the, we see the Egyptians rolling in this big cloud of dust and their chariots and all this other stuff that they have, we can have joy and peace and say, well, God's going to take care of it. And that doesn't mean we just lay down and go, well, let's see what happens in a way, right? We still have certain things to do we're going to see in a minute. But we can have joy and peace that, okay, God got us here. He'll get us out of this. And even if Paul says when he was faced with death, he's like, well, two things are going to happen. I'm going to die and go with the Lord, or I'm going to be here and keep preaching the gospel. Either way is good with me. Because I've either done my time or I still have more things to do. And that's how we need to live our lives, right? If anything happens, any kind of situation, I either die and I go to heaven or I keep going and I have other things to do here. And that's how we need to live our lives. And we can be, if we do that, and it's easier said than done, I totally get it. Because, look, I'll say it, all you have to do is have hope. Right? That's a lot harder than what it sounds like. We get it. But we need to practice this and put this into play and say, okay, God, I'm trusting you. Because I don't have a chariot to fight these Egyptians. But God opens his pathway for his people to guide them through to the places that he needs them to go. And so that's the third part, verses 15 through 25, is he is opening these pathways. And so this is probably the most well-known part of Exodus, one of the well-known parts of Exodus where he is going to part the sea. And so we'll read verses 15 through 18. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by the means of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through the Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So he's like, look, I'm going to make a pathway. I'm going to move the sea for you so you have a bridge to get across. And then at some point, I'm going to close the bridge and they're going to all, the Egyptians are all going to die. So here's the application part up front is that we need to follow God down the path when he opens it. Because God tells them, look, tell the Israelites to break camp. Like, don't just sit there. Don't just wait for them to come to you. Like, you just need to get up and go do something. Right? Pull your card. Go, okay, look, move four spaces over to the right. Because we can't stay in one spot when something happens. So in the military, we call this get off the X. If you get hit with, if you watch any kind of military movies, they get hit in some kind of ambush. Like, you can't just stay there. You have to move. Either go backwards or go forwards, but you can't just sit there because that's all targeted. Right? So in our, in our systems, our body, we have a three-prong response possibly, right? Any of these options, you have fight, flight, or freeze. And these are natural responses, and you can't necessarily fight it either. That's the problem is sometimes you can't, you have to do a lot more thinking to override these things. And so it's hard to, to fight when you, want, when you shouldn't fight or run when you maybe shouldn't run or freeze when you need to do something. Right? But we have to overcome our natural inclination to do any of these things. And what we need to do is the fourth one, it's follow. Right? We need to follow God. When he says something, we can't just say, I don't want to do it. Or, I'm going to fight you, God. Or, nope, I'm just staying put. No, we, okay, God, you're telling me to do it? All right, I got it. How do I do it? Break camp. All right. Move over here. Go over there. Whatever it is. 
And that's harder to do, but the Bible gives us encouragement and gives us instructions on how we could do this. And so Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know him, and he will make your paths straight. Right? This, is, this is what the Israelites are doing right here. They need to trust in the Lord because what they're doing is relying on their own understanding and saying, well, this doesn't make sense to us. We either stay here or we die. Or this, and they just want to turn around to Moses and complain to him. Why'd you bring us out here? They, they started blaming him for all this stuff. Like, dude, you brought us out here in the middle of nowhere, got us lost, and now we're dying. We're getting attacked. But we need to trust God with all our heart and know that he will do everything. He, he's doing everything in his power because everything's already orchestrated to make it right. He makes our path straight in front of us, even though we, it may seem crooked to us. And this is the words of Jesus from Matthew 16, 24. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right? So this is, this is what Christianity is all about. This isn't keep doing what you want to do whenever you want to do it, but you can still say you're a Christian. Right? This is like, I don't want, you need to stop doing what you want to do because what you want to do is most likely not right. It's not godly a lot of times until you have your heart transplanted and then you, keep, then you can keep following God. But this is a daily process. This is a daily process because every day the enemy is attacking you. Every day with something. Whatever it is, we need to do this every single day. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So every day we cry out to Jesus, look to Jesus to see where do you want me to go today, God? So the good thing is, while God is opening some doors for us, he's protecting you by closing paths for his enemies. And this is what the end of the chapter is that we see is, is that God parts the sea. Or he tells Moses, all right, hold up your stick. The ocean goes this way or the sea opens up. You can walk across. And this is where the Egyptians take this as like, ha ha, we have them. They're stuck. Right. So let's go in after them, boys. They're going in. They're chasing them, and they have a lot of, one, it's a funnel anyway, probably, so you have to, all these chariots that are probably in a, this big of a line, they have to turn it, go into this line, so they can go this way, and then they get stuck because it's muddy, it's water, everything else, but we see that the Lord is fighting for them, right? They, they actually say, the Egyptians say that, well, we need to turn back, because they get about halfway over, they say, oh, wait, we need to turn back, because God's fighting for them, so let's try to turn around, so now all of a sudden, if you've ever been in like, you know, a doorway and everybody's, oh, no, I got to turn around. And all of a sudden, how does that work for everybody else behind you? Right now, you're a salmon trying to swim upstream and everybody else is confused, too. And you can only move over so far. And so now all of a sudden you have people going two different ways and they get trapped. Right. They get bogged down. And then God closes the door and has the water come back in and it starts, you know, drowning them. And so the cool thing is because a lot of times the people who are atheists or people who don't want to believe or don't take this thing, take the Bible literally, they think this is just sort of a, a story. They think it's, um, it definitely couldn't happen this way. You couldn't drown people. You couldn't do this on this scale. But the cool thing is there's a lot of people who have done research on this, and they think that one thing is that there may be an actual effect of the wind and weather that comes in where this possibly takes place um, and actually could have pushed the water away so it actually could have had a, uh, a, uh, a, a natural like land bridge sort of thing, like almost like a levee. Like when, when it gets dry, on the, like if the tide goes out, you have like a sandbar on the, in the ocean. Um, it did that, and so the Israelites could get across. I think maybe it has like a four-hour window that everybody could have got across. And then it started closing back, almost like, you know, like a tide receding or the wind dying down. And the cool thing, the other cool thing is that there has been research and they think because there, there are people who look, are looking archaeologically for archaeological evidence for this. And they have found numerous chariot wheels and other pieces, Egyptian chariot wheels that date roughly, you know, they're definitely Egyptian and they date to possibly the time of Moses. So unless these guys are just driving through here, no matter what, like it just happens to open up a road and they can go through it and then they get stuck possibly, there are... There is evidence that this definitely could have happened. Like, this is, you know, actual things. This isn't just some story it's making up, like, you know, sort of myths and legends as far as, like, here's how we got become the Israelites. You know, this is an actual thing. This is a real deal that they're... And, of course, you can't... The other side of that is you can't necessarily prove 100% this was the day of the Exodus. Like, well, here it is. But there's stuff that they found that lines up with what the story is. 
So here's what we do for this part, just to cut them aside. We trust the people who wrote the Bible who were there at those times because they knew what it was. They saw it, they had the story, they knew what it was. It wasn't just people just adding on and making it this big elaborate thing. But here's the application for this part is that we need to remember who is fighting for you. Right? When our enemies are around, we need to remember that God is the one fighting for us. And so the Lord fought for the Israelites and he rescued them. We see that the angel of the Lord who was in front of them, who is another name, it's another name for the Lord, he was in front leading them, he circles back to protect them from behind during this battle. And we see that other times in the Bible, God is also protecting and fighting for his people as well. He makes the sun stand still to give Joshua and the army enough time to fight. He destroys the Assyrians overnight when they siege Jerusalem. But the largest fight and the most important fight was fought on the cross. Right, just like the Israelites versus the Egyptians, we are sorely outmatched to defeat death and sin. And there's only one way that those enemies can be defeated, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one, because he went to the cross to fight death and sin. He went there to perfect us, to eradicate sin from our lives. But just like the Israelites told Moses, we may think, well, maybe we should go back to the Egyptians. We, maybe we should go back to the way it was in our sinful lives, because it's easier. I can just do what I want. I can... Do anything I want and nobody cares. But now the problem is you know that what you're doing is wrong. So now you can't even enjoy what you're doing before because you know it's wrong. So we may want to be like the Egyptians and be like, well, I want to go back and you can't. But this new road scares us, we may say, because we don't know what's ahead. But just like the game of sorry, if we don't move forward, if we don't go home, we won't get there. If you don't take the step toward God, you won't get there. And God draws you to him so that that's so that almost like a tractor beam being pulled. And we understand that. Like we know that we are moving. God moves us toward him. Because sometimes we have to reverse course and take the long way home. And that's the reason. Because we want to do what we want to do, but we know we can't. We need to get rid of all our sin, get rid of all our problems and give it to him. And he will take care of it because he has already fought the battle. Right? And sometimes this long way home is because we have to sit and wait to have the sin destroyed from us and have to sand off the rough edges as, as it is. And so you're not ready to move on. The card hasn't been pulled yet. So as soon as you pull that one of the deck, okay, you can move now. So we're wrapping it up. Right? So just like, sorry, you have to be patient. Because I've sat through whole games of like not getting the card I needed to move. And I didn't think I was ever going to even get out of there. But you have to take action at the right times. You have to be strategic about certain things and, and look at God and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I have a four. I can move forwards or backwards. Which way is the best way? Because we may think that moving forward is always the best thing, but sometimes we have to go backwards to do it, to get where we're going. Because where we want to go is back home. That is where we're going, right? We want to be next to God, and God is guiding you through that life back to him. And he will get you there in the right amount of time. Just like everything else, like I know now, we kind of mentioned it before, but I can still remember having to order things through a catalog with money orders. I, I would order hockey equipment as a kid, and I had to look through the catalog. I had to fill out the order form, go down and get a money order, stick it in there, send it off, wait for it to come back. So it took like three days. I calculated it out. I knew it was three days to get to New Jersey. Probably a day or two for them to process it, and then at least three or four days for it to come back. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I should have my new stuff in a week or a week and a half. But I had to wait. Now it kills us to wait, what, a day or two for Prime? Like, ah, Amazon said it's going to be late. Ah. Well, then go to the store and buy it, right? That's your quickest way. But we, so we are kind of, you know, we're kind of ruining ourselves with certain things because we start losing our patience. We start losing the ability to have patience. We have to develop that. We have to trust God that he will take care of it in his time because he is eternal. He is a whole different time, different time scale. And we know we're, we're finite. We, we're only here for this amount of time. But we need to trust God that he's got the whole big picture. Because we trust him to do this because it's not for, it's not for us. Right? That's the other part of it. Right? It's not for us. This is for his glory. This is for his glory and not us. And so we are a part of that story, but it's his glory that he's doing things and through, it's through his power that he is doing everything 
and we're a beneficiary of his grace. So as we go out this week, as we are faced with the enemy or faced with these different things, right, trust in God, move when you need to move, let, stay put when you need to stay put, but always keep in your forefront of your mind God and his way, right, his path and stay on that path, no matter how long the line is, and, and just enjoy the scenery, right? We all go for country road drives sometimes, right? My grandparents used to take me to see uh, Christmas lights in the wintertime. We, oh, let's drive around the town. I'm like, oh, my God. I was like 12. I didn't want to go look at Christmas lights. Right? They loved doing it because they just enjoyed it. And so just enjoy the road you're on that God is taking you because you're going to see some great things you may not otherwise see. Right? So as the band comes up, right, think about that. Think about how you can enjoy the road no matter how long it is when you're, when you're here in, on earth. All right, so let's go ahead and stand. As the band comes up, we'll transition. And we will sing our last two songs. All right, so we're in Exodus uh, chapter 15, and I'll have the stuff up on the board as we go through. Um, all of you know that, uh, you know, I love music, and so obviously there is music in the Bible, so that's the nice thing, that the music, music is biblical, right? So that's the fun thing. Um, and we see singing, dancing, all these things in the Bible, so when people try to tell you it's not, it is. Um, and so if I had to title this with the song title, this would be What I Like About You by the Romantics um, <clears throat> as well, which is also one of my favorite songs with the drummer who sings, so that's even better. <clears throat> right, and we all have favorite songs. Right? I'm sure we all have some kind of favorite song, and we probably have more than one depending on the mood we're in. Right? Maybe if we're cleaning or working or doing something, or maybe some kind of songs or one song particularly. Maybe if you're happy, just generally happy, you may have something else. Maybe if you're bummed out, a little sad, you may have some kind of blues or something else playing. Right? We all have different songs. And so songs are poems, right? Songs are poems that are set to some kind of music. So when we all hated poetry in English class, probably in high school, right? Like, ah, but we love music, right? And it's the same thing. It's just set to, set to music, and it's a way to tell a story. Right? Poems and songs are ways to tell stories, and a lot of times because you have to shove everything into you know, normal songs three to four minutes long, so you have to get really creative with the wording and, and how things rhyme and all this other stuff like that, so you have to smush things together, but there's all kinds of stories to tell, right? Everybody has stories, love, heartbreak, a good dog in a truck if you like country music, right? There's tragedy like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald or stories of heroism like the Ballad of the Green Beret, I used to have the 45 when I was a kid. I used to play with my little Scooby-Doo record player that I had. I used to have all these records. Um, and there's the historical songs, right? Like, Please, Mr. Custer, I Don't Want to Go. I don't know if you guys remember that or not. I also had that record. Um, or there's funny stories. I was looking for stuff. And Ray Stevens, right? The Mississippi Squirrel Revival. Right? I, th I thought about playing that, actually, for, for today just because it had been fun. But cause it is, it's a church song, right? It's a church song. Um, right, but these stories and the fact that you guys laughed and know what those most people laugh and things like that, you guys probably know what those songs are, or you'll go home and Google it at least if you don't know. So th that's how the in, the music impacts us, right? You can hear a note or a or a little a little somebody tapped on their on their desk or something like that, or even maybe even a horn in traffic, and you automatically have a song come to mind. Because that's what music does, right? My mom used to kind of get on me about stuff. She's like, "How come you can't remember your math?" But you can remember rap songs, right? I'm like, well, because it rhymes and it's easy and it makes sense and it's not math, yeah. right? It's not math, but, it, but I mean, in a way, music is math because there's a bunch of notes and trying to keep time and everything else, it's hard, right? But, but that's what songs do, and so that's what we have here today. This is Moses' song. It's also called the Song of the Sea, um, and it recounts what just happened in, in the last few chapters of Exodus with the, with the actual moving, getting across the Red Sea and how God you know, got the, the Israelites out and then killed the Egyptians. He basically drowned them in, in the ocean, the water. Right? It's, it's how he does this and how they recount it. Because again, it's hard to remember this whole book if it's all, if it's all word, like just paragraphs of words, but you shove it in a small pair, a couple lines of song. All of a sudden, you can remember it. You can pass it on. And so today is Mother's Day, kind of like I said in the intro, right? It's Mother's Day, and so this is where we sing the praises of our mothers or other people who fill those roles in our lives. And we should celebrate them every day, but we should also praise God every single day. 
Because he's our father. He is, their, he is the ultimate parent. No matter how bad of parents we are, you know, because we're all learning how to be parents as much as the, the kids are growing up a lot of times. So we make mistakes, things like that. So we have to ask forgiveness from the kids. The kids have to forgive us for all these things that we did or not didn't do, whatever they thought was it, whatever it was. But here we have God. He always acts perfectly in the right time, in the right situation. And that's what Moses is recognizing here. That's what he's praising in this in this song here. And so we're going to read Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And then we will get into the text as we go. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath and consumed them like stubble. And we'll stop there. We'll get through the rest of it as we go through. Um, and this, this is, since verses 1 through 21 is its own, it's like the song, the rest of it um, sort of gets into how God feeds the people and, and gives them water, as, as, so that'll be for next week or so. Um, and so the first point in this, oh, here's the main idea, excuse me, real quick, backing up, is, is, is let us sing God's praises of the world, right? That is the main idea. That is what we should be doing every day. Let us sing God's praises every day. We all have situations where God has rescued us from uh, sin just getting out of a car accident or things like that, right? There's all kinds of different things that God does. It doesn't have to be miraculous. Sometimes it's very boring, but we know God is there, right? We know God is there because the way things line up and we kind of get to the point where we know that God, it couldn't be anybody else but God doing things for us, right? And when we start looking and analyzing everything, we kind of see this. And so the first thing in this, in this instance of giving his praise is that he is worthy of our praise, God is worthy of our praise. And so good songwriters can crank out songs pretty easily, it seems like. Right? If you kind of listen and listen to, to, to musicians or watch things like that, they're like, oh, yeah, I wrote it in an hour or I wrote it in 20 minutes, and it's a hit. You know, there's just people that do that. They're gifted. They know how to use words. They know how to make music. They know, they, they know melodies, all this stuff, other things. And so it's easy for them to do it. For the rest of us, you know, the best thing I come up with is Veronica. Veronica, you're on my, you're on my wife, and I'm glad you're in my life. Right? That's, that's kind of, that's it. That's the extent of my poem writing. Right? That's pretty much it. Right? It's all on par with roses are red. But we know that this evidence, we have evidence. If you get into the how everything's written in the wording and, and the Hebrew it's used, this song of the sea is probably the earliest authored portion of the book of Exodus. After everything happened, Moses sat down, or Moses was walking on the way. And he wrote a song. Right? And we know that based on everything else, this is probably the earliest part of the book of Exodus. So they think most, most likely a lot of the book of Exodus was written, you know, what we would say in, in, in chronological order at the end of Deuteronomy. So before Moses passed away, when he was 120, but this was written probably 40 years earlier when he was 80. Right? So at, right after all this happens, he, write this part, he wrote this part, he wrote it down. Or at least they authored it and maybe wrote it down later. <clears throat> and so he writes this right after everything happens. So he has this fresh in his mind of everything that just happened. All the events that we read in Exodus 4, 13 and 14, he wrote down. And so we see this. And so then he taught it to Miriam, his sister, who taught it forthwith to the women of Israel, as it says back in like verse 20 and 21. And so this opening of the song lets us know exactly who the subject of the, so the, subject of the song is. It's God. Right? Sometimes when we hear music, we're like, who is he writing about? Who, who or she, he or she is singing about? Like, what happened? You know, sometimes you kind of try to figure it out. But here we, he tells us right up the front, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. There's no question. Moses gets right to the point. God has just won a major victory. And the Israelites were once again rescued from the pursuing Egyptians. Right? I remember last week, they were sort of used as bait a little bit. Initially, you're like, God's like, hey, hang on, camp here while they come catch up. They're like, what? Why can't, why can't they just leave some flares or something let them follow us? No, you got to stay here. I don't know about that. 
Right? And so this, this is a victory hymn, right? And it's a song sung to and about God in praise of his granting victory to his people over their foes. Because the world is against God, so everybody, everybody who's against God is God's foe, but they're also Israelites' foe. And for them, it's very real because they're very much alive on the earth. And so they were very worried about getting put back in captivity, put back in slavery, and probably having their lives made even way worse than before. And so one commentator points out that the ingredients of Israelite hymns, so if you look through the Psalms and other, other songs in the Bible, the Israelite hymns may almost always be summarized by the, by the initials SRR. So summons to praise, the reasons to praise, and then recapitulation or like repeat. Right? So it's kind of like wash your hair, rinse, wa wash, rinse, repeat. Right? So you never, you never get out of the shower because you're constantly doing that. Except for me because it takes it doesn't take me very long. But all three of these elements here of what, what Moses does, this pattern he follows, it's all in abundance here because you sort of see things repeated. And you're like, man, I already get it. I get it, Moses. You know, God did a good thing. But he's reiterating that so we understand and we remember. Because in this song, we want to remember what happened because this is important for the whole nation. Because this Exodus event is talked about even now. People are still studying it now. Trying to figure out if it's right, wrong, real, not real you know, conflated or whatever because it just may be myth or legend or history or whatever it is. They want to make sure that this is real and it's, it's tracked. So when, when Moses starts out, he says, I will sing to the Lord. So that Hebrew phrase for I will sing can also be translated, I must sing. Right? It's an imperative, I must sing. I have to tell you this good news. Right? Or let me sing. Like, let me tell you the story of a man named Jed, right? That's kind of the thing, right? The Beverly Hillbillies. We wanted to, let me tell you the story. It's so crazy. I want to tell you this story because you're not going to believe it unless I actually tell you. And unless you were there, you probably still won't believe it. Even if you were there, you might not believe it. Right? Because in our society, especially today, when something good happens or somebody does something awesome, we want to tell others about it, right? Go to this place to get your hair done. Go to this place to get your cat cakes. Go to this place or don't go to this place. Don't go here. We got food poisoning. True story. Last week. Yeah. And so our society become, has become kind of built on reviews. And I don't think it's, this is, it's just the internet has made it easier. Because it used to be just word of mouth. So if I told you guys that, only you guys know. But if I put it on the internet, don't go to this restaurant. Because you may get food poisoning. Then everybody knows. Right, so that your, your, your net is much larger. But Yelp and Google has reviews. Amazon have reviews. If you don't know it, I look at, I look at uh, reviews when I want to buy something. If it's something I haven't bought before, like, what does this look like? Because it's too good to be true. It's $20 for this thing. Hmm. Right, so what do, what do I do? I read the one-star reviews. Because everybody's going to be like, this was great. Okay, that doesn't help me. But you get the one-star reviews of like, this was terrible. This didn't happen. Right. So here's one right here. This is the UFO detector. <clears throat> so in case you need one or you're tempted to buy one when you find it, you can't. I'll read it to you. I have it typed out. But it says right there at the top, one star is too much for this product. And so he goes on to say, I'm not sure if this is a scam or if mine is broken, <laughs> but it doesn't work. Now, wait, now wait, hold on. This gets better. And I'm still getting abducted by aliens on a regular basis. <laughs> Right? So, if you're trying to avoid getting abducted by aliens, you may not want to buy this. You may want to look for a different UFO detector. And we, post, we, we, we poke fun at this stuff, but, I mean, we, we want to do this. And so, if the Pharaoh was going to write a, one, a review of God, he's probably going to give him the same, roughly the same thing. One star is too much. Killed my whole army. It wasn't nice to me. You know, that, that type of stuff, right? Because... He's on the other end of that, but my guess is Moses is giving him a five-star review. Like, God is the best. He's my strength. He's my song. He's become my salvation. Right? Moses is like, buy this product and buy it now and buy it a lot. Because God never disappoints, right? Sometimes you buy these things and, it, and maybe that thing's like this big. I don't know how big it is. It may be like this big even. Of course you can't catch UFOs if it's that big. Right? But... We're not going to be disappointed, and God is worth everything that we give up because nothing compares to him. 
Nothing compares to God. Nothing compares to what he does and what he has done for us and what he will continue to do in our lives. And so this escape is one of the pivotal scenes in the biblical drama, right? If, if, if this is a movie, this is where the music comes in all big and like you hear this, oh, it's like we know something good is happening, right? Just like in the horror movies, you know somebody's going to die because you hear the music, it's all creepy, right? Life will be better with the soundtrack, be a lot easier. Like, oh, I'm going to go to the store and I hear weird music, like, oh, maybe I'm not. Right? Maybe I'm not going to go on the 101 today because it's bad traffic, whatever it is. Right? But this music helps us feel the mood and helps us tell the story on a subconscious level because you automatically get feelings when you hear the music. It's the same thing when you hear somebody singing this song. If you could hear somebody sing, and I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Right? But, but you probably get this feeling if you sung it the right way of what it would sound like. And even if they sung it in Hebrew, you could probably get the story that something big was happening, I bet. And so once we understand the essential role of music that as a response to redemption, it becomes clear that why this Exodus 15 has to be a song. It's not just a poem. It's not just something to chuck in here because some, some commentators think, well, this is just stuck in there later. Like somebody else, like they wrote all the paragraphs and then wrote this later and stuck it in there. It doesn't belong. But really this makes more sense that this is the main point and everything else was written after because just like the song, there's a whole lot of background that goes with this that you have to spell out for people who weren't there, but this is the easy way to get it communicated to people. The Israelites have just been saved. Imagine, right, we sing when good things happen. At least I do. And so right at that moment, they needed to praise God for delivering them. They said, the Bible says, then, then Moses and the Israelites sang this to the Lord, sang the song of the Lord. And so the then makes this connection between verses of chapter 14 and chapter 15. And so this is all about the salvation. And so Psalm 30, verse, verses 11 and 12 says, You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Right? The NIV, the NIV actually says that, verse 12, that my heart may sing your praises. Right? The song is coming from here. It's not just up here like I made up a Weird Al Yankovic song and I'm just singing a song. It's from here because it's true and it's feely. It's felt. I am so grateful that I am saved that here it is. I can't even keep it in. It just comes out. And so the Israelites were saved. And when we come to Jesus, we also realize that we are saved and that our enemy has been destroyed. The enemy of sin, whatever it is in our lives, has been destroyed. We don't have to be there anymore. We're no longer under its captivity. We don't have to be. And so like the sea that covered the Egyptians, the stone that closed up Jesus' tomb swallowed up your sin and threw it into the grave. And that's where it laid. But like Jesus, you were resurrected into a new life. And that is the, that is the best new feather. And that is, what, that is the greatest thing God can do. So verses 4 through 13 and so the whole point of this, this starting at verse 4, it starts to tell us what God did and why he is worthy of these praises. And so he's recounting this event for the people who weren't there so that they know about it. Right? And so the event is passed down through each singing. This is something that you can sing around the campfire anytime you're camped. They're like, hey, remember why we're out here? Here's why. Here's how we got here. And so the Star Spangled Banner, right, it's a retelling of the Battle of Fort McHenry in Baltimore. And so if you don't know, after watching, he was, uh, Francis Scott Key was arrested, and he was, well, he was sort of like house arrest on his boat, and he was stuck there in the harbor of Baltimore. And he was watched for 25 hours straight that the British bombing this fort, just nonstop, cannons, bombs, everything, right, all these things. And he looked over at the fort. They kind of went out and they looked at it. And he, he was relieved and then surprised also that he saw the American flag, right? The Star-Spangled Banner flying over the fort and not the British flag, the Union Jack. And that's why he wrote the song. And so that whole song is, is a compressed telling of that whole battle, that 25-hour 24 battle. And so for us, that was one of the single most important events in, in, in our history as a country. And so Moses also understood that this event, this exodus, was the single most important event in Israel's history. 
God used his power to control nature and his skill and understanding of people and situations to rescue his people from the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Right? Israel was very small. They were just slaves. They didn't have any training or whatever it was. And they, he made it away from them to get out of there. And he destroyed them as they were chariot. And so, so the other reason is that we don't have to just know what God did, but we understand why God took the actions he did. And starting in verse 9, we listen to Pharaoh and what he says. It says, Moses says, the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. It's a lot of eyes in there. The Pharaoh thinks he's super important, right? So one commentator says this, he says, these few short staccato lines, right, these boom, 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 boom lines capture the very essence of Pharaoh. The Egyptian monarch was thoroughly self-centered. Somehow he managed to refer to himself six times in only a single verse. Right? I, I will, I will this, I will that. And so sometimes, a lot of times maybe we are like Pharaoh, we are self-centered. Right, when we're two, two or three-ish, right, as kids, you know, everything is mine. Even if it's not. Right, mine, mine, give it back, mine, mine, right? And so you have these fights because you have to learn that the world is bigger than you, that everything is not your property, that you have to share. And, you know, on some levels we grow out of it, right? We understand we can't just walk into work and go, it's mine, Okay, fine, you, you deal with it then. But a lot of times on another level, we really don't grow out of it. Because we want what's ours. We want things that are ours. We want things that maybe don't belong to us. We want things we can't have or shouldn't have. Because we don't ever grow out of that self-centeredness, in a sense. Until we embrace God's grace and then we humble ourselves, right? That's when we get out of that situation. And it's still a process. Right? That's the sanctification process that we're becoming more like Christ. We don't, we don't just become Christ-like when we get saved. Like all of a sudden you're like Jesus. And you're totally perfect and you never have a problem again. Far from it. A lot of times we have more problems because unfortunately now we have a new understanding of the world and it doesn't fit with what the world says. And what we grew up with for however long whenever we get saved. And so we have problems, right? Because it's hard to humble yourself sometimes. Because you see the wrongs, or you think you're being wrong, and you want, to be, it wants, you want it to be right. You want it to be yours. And so we have to get rid of that. And so part of that humbling comes not from bragging about what we did and tell others, but, but about what God did and why he should be known, right? So we don't have a hand in our salvation other than the sin that caused it. Right? That's what Jonathan Edwards says. But we understand that once we are on the other side of that, we should let other people know what happened. And so Exodus 15, verses 14 through 16, Moses says, When the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord. This news is going to get out. Everybody's paying attention at this point to Egypt because they're waiting to pounce and take over anything they can from Egypt. Right? They're the big dog on the block, so anybody wants to move in and take care of any, any little chunks that they can of their land or their stuff or whatever it is, they want what's theirs, that Egypt probably stole from them. So they are watching, and this news is going to get out fast. Now, the Egyptians are probably going to do everything they can to, to quell this noise. Like, this, this never happened. It was a training accident, right? Some kind of, they put out a news story. It was a training accident. We went into the lake and didn't know it. <clears throat> but everybody else is going to know that the Egyptians just lost a considerable size part of their army. And they're weakened. And they can do it. But who did it? Well, God did it. And so back then, right, your God was following you around. Or your God was going ahead of you. So they were worried. Like if the Israelites are coming, that means God is coming. Yahweh is coming. We better back up. We better get out of their way. 
Because he may do the same thing to us that he did to the Egyptians. And so they're like, whoa. And so that's the nice thing about the ancient worlds is they understood the power of God. And they're so that this, our day, a lot of people don't. They're like, ah, it's made up. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a fairy in the sky or whatever it is. It's not going to happen until they get to this point, too, that God brings them to their knees and says, no, oh, he's real. You can read all kinds of stories. We all have the same stories because no matter how powerful or not powerful we are, we all have the same story that God brought us and humbled us, got us to the point where we understood we had to give ourselves over to him. That we have to give our lives up for him because of what he offers. And so we come back to the purpose of leaving reviews for others to read, right? We want to go tell the good news from the mountain of what Jesus did for us, right? We want to tell our families and our friends what happened to us. Because one commentator says this, he says, God does not keep his love to himself, but shares it with his people. Right? God's just not my God, he's, he's God. Right? He's God for the whole world. So he wants to bring home his people that live, to live with him. That's the whole point. He wants us to... He is reestablishing the Garden of Eden that was started in Genesis 1 and 2 all the way back. That's how the book ends in Revelation. It's back in the garden with just lots more people. It's no longer just Adam and Eve. It's everybody he brought in. And so the mountain in this verse that we see towards the end of the, end of the, the chapter here in verse 17 may refer to Mount Sinai, but more probably refers to Mount Zion, which is the city of God in Jerusalem. Right? It was there in the holy sanctuary of his temple that God made his earthly dwelling. Right? That's where the temple is. The Old Testament is a story of God bringing his people to their home in the house of the Lord. And so this is still God's plan for his people, the commentator says. The temple at Mount Zion was an earthly symbol of God's heavenly temple in the new Jerusalem. So every day God is bringing more and more children into his holy dwelling. And soon all God's people will be there to sing the song that will never end. And that's what's mentioned in Revelation. When we went through the book of Revelation, there's a huge multitude of people and they're all singing the same song. They're singing the new song. Right? That's what Revelation says. We're singing this new song because we know what it is. Because we, te- we get taught it. And so God's love, God is love and he is jealous. And he, is, he will fiercely defend his people. That's what this is. He's not letting, he's not sharing the Israelites with Egyptians. He's not like loaning them out to go, oh yeah, go build your temples. He's like, no, these are my people I'm rescuing. These are mine. And he will stop at nothing to ensure that all of his people return home to be added to this choir. And so our job here on earth is to tell people the song, right? Tell them about the song and see if they want to sing it. And join the band, right? So a lot of times bands would have what's called street teams and they would hire people to come out and you go out and you used to stand out there and like pass out tapes and then CDs, right? Now you can put it on the internet so you kind of don't need people necessarily, but they still rely on people to say, hey, check this band out. Check that band out. Sing these songs. You can get them in your head. And so we all have our own stories to tell. Because we should want to be like Moses. We should want to tell everybody how awesome God is. Like how much your life has changed from yesterday to today. The things he's done in your life and the things he's done in my life could fill the book. Right? We're not in the Bible, we don't, but we don't need to be in the Bible. Because we're living proof of what God is doing. Moses, Abraham, Jesus, David, Daniel. Those are the big heavy hitters that are you know, sub-main characters in the, in the story that are going along. But the story is about God. And what he does for his people and for his, for, for his creation. But we don't have to write this super awesome complex song. But we should have the story to tell, right? Even if you think it's mundane. So yesterday, Mason and I were driving up to the store to get some Mother's Day gifts. Not because we're procrastinators. It just worked out that way. <clears throat> um, but I heard yesterday on the radio that uh, Bon Jovi's song, Wanted Dead or Alive. Did you know that song? It was written by John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. It was written in Richie Sambora's mom's basement. And John Bon Jovi said it was written next to the washing machine. So here you have this awesome song. If you like this song, I think it's awesome. But this, this very popular song, hit song, written in somebody's mom's basement. But you didn't know that because the song is just that good. So it doesn't matter where it's written. It doesn't matter where you come from. or where it's, It matters that your story is awesome. Because God did awesome things in your life. Right, and so that's a super odd place to write a hit song, but there it was, right? That's what happened. 
And so then I read yesterday, too, that, that Paul Simon's song, uh, A Mother and Child Reunion, the title's based off of a menu item from a Chinese restaurant that he was eating at. So he's like, I like that name. I'm going to use it at some, point, at some point for a song title. Completely random, but he worked it out. He did, he did it. And so, wrapping it up, right? Many of our songs are like that, too. They're written in, the, in this obscure place. But God brings us out of this basement to be with him in heaven. That's where we start. We all start in the basement, but he brings us out. And so he has given us a part in the story, but again, let's keep this in mind, that he is the point of the story. His saving grace here with the Israelites and then later with Jesus saving the rest of God's people, that is the point of the story. His grace, his love, his sacrifice for us to make us right with him again, that's the point. God's grace saves us and brings him to him. He upholds the covenant that we cannot. Right? So God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John 3.16. That is the good news. If you, that is the main lyric of the Bible. Right? God so loved the world he gave his only son. And so if you have kids, you know what that means if you would have to give up your kid for anything. And you're like, no, I'm not doing it. No way. You guys can all figure it out. He's mine. But God said he's mine but I'm giving you, I'm giving him up to make everything right because he was fully God and fully man. He's the only one that could make it right. And that's the good news, right? That is the message of the song that God paid the price for us. And so we should go out and sing God's praises. Sing them to yourself and then sing them to others every day. Right? And it's the least we can do for the one who did so much for us. Right. And again, we should do the same thing with our mothers, with the people who act in that capacity as well, um, because they did so much for us. Right. So as the band comes up, we'll, we'll do our last couple songs.